Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, we're taking a journey in search of modern marvels with science writer Casper Henderson and his latest book, A New Map of Wonders. Casper Henderson has been a journalist and an editor with various publications and broadcasters, including BBC Radio 4, The Financial Times, The Independent, Nature, New Scientist and Open Democracy. He is a past recipient of a IUCN Reuters Award for Best Environmental Reporting in Western Europe. His debut book, which we spoke about a few years ago on Little Atoms, is The Book of Barely Imagined Beings, and that book won the Roger Deakin Award for the Society of Authors and the Jerwood Award of the Royal Society of Literature, and was also shortlisted for the Royal Society Winton Prize for Science Books. And Casper's latest book, which we're going to be talking about today, is A New Map of Wonders, A Journey in Search of Modern Marvels. Casper, welcome back to Little Atoms. Neil, thanks for having me back. What's the idea behind this book then? Or at least, let's say, where did the idea for this book come from? The idea of the book is it's reasons to be cheerful. <laughs> um, I think that's where, where I might start. And it came from several things, but particularly a quite mundane experience I had one day in the kitchen of our house. There was an amazing pattern of flickering shadows and sunlight on the wall. And I couldn't work out where it was coming from. It was coming from a very strange angle and hitting the ceiling. I couldn't work out why. Uh, and it's, it, it seemed particularly beautiful and strange to me. So as I say, this is pretty mundane. But in a way, I, I realized experiencing this that actually there are ways in which such simple experiences connect to many, many different and extraordinary things. And it was a, a path into a meditation about life and how it is that we keep going and particularly where we find a sense of wonder and the energy that comes with that state of mind. What, what it is that creates a sense of wonder, why we feel wonder and what is the nature of wonder. Let's first of all, before we go on, define what we mean or what you mean in the context of this book by wonder, because there's lots of synonyms for wonder. We could talk about awe, which has a, a, a perhaps a sort of supernatural feel to it, or the sublime, which you know has a sort of idea of a terror of something amazing behind it. What are you talking about when you talk about wonder? Yeah, no, you make a good point. It's it means a lot of different things to different people, and there's a there's a long history of of wonder, if you like, and and the emotions associated with it and, and people have meant different things at different times. But I'll give you a very simple definition, which is that wonder is an experience of something 
that has not yet been defined. I'd say it has a lot in common with awe sometimes, uh, and it can have something in common with curiosity. In fact, a lot in common with both of those. But it's not quite the same as either. And um, at least that's my starting point. In the introduction to the book, though, I, I write a little bit about this and the history of, uh, of the idea, how it relates historically to some of these allied or similar states of mind and being, religious ideas, you mentioned the sublime and so on. So I don't claim to have a definition of wonder. I think, in fact, that's, that would be a mistake. But I think it's very fertile ground to explore. And uh, I hope I brought something there which will help people explore for themselves and um, maybe feel enriched and at least more curious or more energetic to go out and look. Tell us something about the format of the book, because it's set out in fundamentally seven chapters, as in seven wonders, um, seven wonders of the world. How did you settle on the seven things to the seven themes of the chapters? Yeah, no, it's got this groaning, lumbering, giant cliche of the seven wonders. That's where I started. I mean, when you write, when you set out to write a book like this, you've got to think, you know, where am I going to stop, basically, because the world is uh, goes on indefinitely. Uh, you have to, you have to give yourself some limits. And and actually, even though the the seven wonders is a is a well worn cliche, I, I think it was it makes a good starting point. It gave me a way of of accessing some of the things I wanted to write about in in a manageable form. And what I did with the seven chapters, I structured them to an extent using an idea, quite a fashionable idea, some people say, an idea of emergence. And this is the concept that sometimes when you put two quite simple things together, something fundamentally new and different, a new behavior or a new property emerges from that combination. A simple example of that is is water, actually, water itself, which is made of, as you know, of two kinds of molecules. It's got two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. And you put these together and you get something, water, which has all kinds of properties that you wouldn't predict from the two kinds of atoms that make it up. And of course, it's actually a uh, topic of endless fascination for some of the people who work on it. Obviously, there's the great beauty and uh, wonder we associate with water in our lives. But there's also the scientific uh, fascination of, of what on earth water is about and how it behaves like it does. So anyway, taking that principle of emergence, I started with a relatively simple uh, wonder. And each of the subsequent six chapters after that first is something that emerges in large part, but not only, but in large part as a consequence of the previous wonder. So if you like, they're kind of stacked on top of each other in some sense. So the first wonder, the first chapter is about light. The second chapter is about the origin of life. Uh, the third chapter is on the human heart, which is uh, one of the things, of course, that uh, life as we know it has made possible. The fourth chapter is on the human brain, which is many people would tell you it's perhaps the single most complex thing in the universe apart from the universe itself. And uh, I think we often don't realize just how extraordinary it is. Uh, the fifth wonder is the self, a human life, this arc of a life we have, even if you're some kind of postmodern or um, kind of angry skeptic about the nature of human identity, I think we do have a, we have existence as physical organisms, as beings, as bodies that are born, grow, live and die. And a few people are going to dispute that. And, and, and of course, we have the potential for all kinds of extraordinary experience in that arc of life. So that's a fifth. The sixth is the is the kind of called the world. <laughs> so what is this world in which we experience our being? And what is its nature? And how do we map it? How do we uh, find our place in it? And the seventh chapter is about technology. It's called Adventures with Perhapsatron. There actually was something called a Perhapsatron. But uh, I've used it as a as a kind of 
a label for all kinds of possibilities, perhaps both good and bad, that we associate with technology. And the technological sublime, of course, was one of those tropes in the 20th century. We now, we our technology fills us with wonder and perhaps also with fear sometimes, but uh, certainly opens the door, we would imagine, to many kinds of possibilities we haven't seen before. So there we go. There's the seven. Okay. So what we'll do is we're going to we're going to take a very short, because we're not going to we'll barely scratch the surface, but there's, there's so much packed into this, so much amazing stuff packed into this book. We'll take a, a brief trip through each one in turn and perhaps talk about a couple of things if, if we have the time. So starting with lights, I guess you start off right at the beginning with the speed of light. Where do you start with light? You know, Towards the very beginning of the chapter, there is a section on the speed of light, just how hard it is to conceive it. And yet it is indeed finite. Historically, if you go far back in the written historical record, many people thought that light had infinite speed. And certainly it appears to us that way. If you if you try to, you know, if you try to turn a light bulb and, and, and see, can I uh, look across the other side of the room before the light arrives? Obviously, you, you won't succeed. It's going so fast that it seems to be there instantaneously. And of course, you need very large uh, distances to, to actually make observations, which will give you an estimate of the speed of light. Early in that chapter, there's a description of a very beautiful experiment, actually, done uh, in the generation after Galileo, and so in the mid to late 17th century, which was the first time somebody came up with a... It was actually not a bad shot at the speed of light. He was in, certainly in the right order of magnitude. The experiment involved looking at the four moons of Jupiter and noticing that, uh, well, they, they obviously they orbit Jupiter and they're occulted, they're hidden behind Jupiter sometimes as they go around from our point of view. And um, the experimenter noticed that uh, there was actually a delay in the appearance of one of the planets when, when the Earth was further away from Jupiter. So uh, anyway, this led to the first estimate of the speed of light and, and uh, everything that followed from it. So again, it's something that isn't very intuitive. You know, it's, a, it's something that our understanding of the speed of light is derived from some very non-intuitive work, from really painstaking science. And that's not to say that we can't appreciate many of the wonders of light without knowing the speed. Of course, we can and do every day. And that's something I try to celebrate in the book. But part of, I guess this is a thrust of the book as a whole, but also specifically here with to do with light, that some greater understanding of the science opens up new ways of marvel and wonder and astonishment at the nature of light and of existence. And there's a, there's a great discussion in the book on rainbows, obviously a, a source of wonder for, for most people. And again, the discussion of the, the sort of science of, of actually surprisingly complicated science of people trying to work out where rainbows came from. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's both complicated and not complicated. I, I don't know about you, Neil, but I sort of I had a general idea of what made rainbows. I, I, I did, did a bit of science in school and I thought I knew. Um, and and the, the basic principles are not that complicated, but perhaps many people don't know them. But what's happening with a rainbow is a combination of things. It's basically reflection and refraction of sunlight. So uh, you've, got, you've got rain falling in the sky. And it's, um, you've got this, if you have the sun behind you and the rain is in front of you, in the right conditions, the sunlight, sunlight is being reflected off the back of raindrops, individual raindrops, and then refracted, that's to say broken up like in a prism. You know, prism breaks light into colors. Depending on where each of the raindrops is in relation to your eye, it's a slightly different angle in the right part of the sky. It's going to give you a slightly different color. So you get this range of colors. 
that's the basic the basic science and people work this out well aristotle had some idea in the, in the in in ancient greece but really people worked this out in the early medieval period there were a couple of remarkable experimenters one in in europe and one in in the muslim world who who worked this out at the same time so that that gives you a starting point for the science um there's also of course a great rich history of of myth around rainbows in in virtually every culture we know of certainly everyone i've i've researched and I suspect every because they are impressive things. They're strange, you know. That we see them frequently enough not to be completely freaked out by them, but they're rare enough that we do. Most people, even today, when we're in a hurry, even if you're rushing down Borough High Street, you, you probably stop and have a look if it's a good one. So they give you, they'll give you a moment of maybe a moment to stop and to think and to uh, and to just marvel at their beauty. Um, that's a very common experience, and I hope one that's enriched by learning a bit more about them and then relating to them, relating to the cultural history. And some of the other ways in which they open up, a, a, again, a window or a door into learning more about light in the natural world. Moving us on to the, the next chapter, which is about life, and, and as, a, as a good way to demonstrate your, uh, your concepts of emergence here, in the, in the light chapter, you talk about the life of a star. And then in the life chapter, let's talk about where, before we can have life, obviously we need the elements that make up life. Where do those elements come from? Yeah, there's, <laughs> these, these chapters cover quite a lot of ground, as you said. So we've got the origin of life. And uh, and I realized, oh God, I have to go back to the beginning here. There's, I think it's, uh, it's Carl Sagan, isn't it? You know, first to make an apple pie, you have to make the universe. Is, I think he said something like that. So to make life, you have to have the things that make it up. And um, most people, many people have probably heard this phrase. It's kind of hippie phrase from the 60s. You know, we are stardust. And of course, it is actually literally true. We are made out of the stuff of dead stars. So uh, you and I, we're, we're mostly um, hydrogen and oxygen in water because we're about 60% water and a lot of carbon and nitrogen and a few other elements in large in large proportion and then a larger number of elements in very small amounts uh, so one example is iron of course which is uh, crucial for carrying oxygen around in our blood and it's only a tiny proportion of us but without it we you, you die right away immediately <laughs> you'd be dead even though it's a tiny tiny amount of your whole mass so where do these things come from they're actually they are made in stars they are made in it's complicated but but many of them and many of the essential ones are made in the process of, of stellar well uh, as a star lives and as it, it uh, contracts and then often explodes depending on its size at the end of its life it's going to send out um, streams and showers of, of of elements heavier than the basic ones of hydrogen and helium. So our sun, for example, is, as you know, is mostly hydrogen being fused into helium. But uh, at the end of its life, it'll actually become a red dwarf um, and then a white white dwarf. And in fact, that will mostly be carbon. Before it becomes carbon and have a stage called a planetary nebula, where it'll, it'll fling off some elements into space, including carbon. Bigger stars will produce uh, more massive stars than the sun, often will produce heavier elements. I mentioned iron is one of them. And then, of course, there are other elements heavier than iron that are produced in particularly dramatic and violent events in, in the process of star formation and star destruction. And uh, so, for example, recently people have confirmed what they were confident about in theory, but they've now observed that gold, if you have any gold, if you have a ring, as I've got a ring on my left, left hand, if I look down at that or anybody else's bit of gold, that gold that you have on your hand or hanging around your neck or wherever it is, that was actually formed in the collision of two neutron stars. Those are the densest objects in the universe outside of black holes. Uh, and when those two things collide, it's so incredibly violent that it even produces something like gold. We, these things are really part of us at every moment, and, and indeed they will be again someday <laughs> uh, out there in the universe.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Casper Henderson, and we're talking about his latest book, which is A New Map of Wonders, A Journey in Search of Modern Marvels. And Casper, I want to move us on to the heart. The heart being, well, it's a real visceral reminder of our life, isn't it? We can feel it. Um, we can, yeah. I mean, we can feel various things in our body, you know, depending if you've if you've eaten some food that doesn't agree with you, you feel that pretty immediately. But but the heart is always there. It's always beating. And sometimes in uh, depending on our circumstances, we may actually be aware of it beating. You know, that might be that might be in a moment of stress or ex- even perhaps extreme happiness even. Uh, you can actually feel it beating. It's always there. And people have recognized its sort of central role in our in our being for as long as again as we have record and probably from long before people had any kind of written record they were they recognized its importance you know obviously they were our ancestors would have been pretty good anatomists given they were butchering and eating animals and they would have probably seen injuries to their fellows which would have exposed a heart either beating or dead and stilled uh, so people people have known about our heart and sensed its importance uh, for a very long time but the chapter starts there but also Again, this maybe it's a, there's a similarity to the chapter on light, a theme at least I'd pull out here, which is that we think we know something about these things, but the more we look in, the more we realize how surprising, astonishing, and beautiful they are. And actually, it's only, in this case, it's also only a few hundred years, again, the 17th century, when people really began to understand what the heart's about, what it's for. We didn't, you know, the circulation of the blood was discovered, if you like, in 1628. <laughs> uh, that's if you have to give it a year, uh, William Harvey. And... Uh, the people started from there to put together a picture of really how this fundamental part of our body works, what it does. And, you know, it's an astonishing picture. You know, if you've if you ever studied biology or even if you didn't, you probably know a bit of a few things about the heart. But the more one learns and its role in our lives and its relation to our psychology and our sense of ourselves and indeed our relation to other people, the actual ways in which it will literally synchronize with people close to us in, in particular conditions, the more you learn, the more the more wonderful it is. So before Harvey, people like Galen and, and what have you, what did people used to think the heart was doing? Well, they thought different things at different times. I mean, the, well, gosh, you know, how far to go back? The, the ancient Egyptians, 
emotions sort of as the seat of the of the self of the soul the most important part of the body and you know uh, any child will tell you with delight that the, the when the mum, egyptians were mummifying somebody they they whip the brains out with a great big iron hook through the nose and indeed they take out all the other organs in the body but they'd leave the heart because they re- they felt or saw even perhaps they felt it for sure that it, it had this particular importance some of the um ancient the classical european medical people you mentioned galen and others they thought that the heart was there to cool the blood they thought um that uh, the liver was probably the most important organ if you open a cavity of a human being which is not something i'd recommend you do at home and if you do you'll see the liver is, is really quite impressive great big thing um and uh, earlier anatomists were impressed by this and they thought this is where the kind of essential juices for for keeping the body going were being produced the humors and so on and the heart had a, an ancillary role they thought just as a a cooling organism to to take the blood and get it to the lungs so it could be cooled. They had no real sense of it uh, as a, they had no idea of a circulation. Tantalizingly, Leonardo da Vinci did some astonishing and very beautiful research and and sketches and drawings of, of the human heart. Actually, he started with the hearts of oxes and oxen and other animals, but also the human heart. He made some observations and had some insights which are in their subtlety and beauty weren't weren't actually rivaled until the late 20th century. Some some things to do with uh, the, the anatomy of the heart and the and the valves that uh, that close every time your heart beats. These astonishing discoveries. There's nothing in his surviving notes that shows that he saw that the heart was circulating blood, but he did recognise it was a powerful pump, and so it must have been pump, was pumping for a reason. Uh, perhaps he just thought it was pumping and then pumping back the same way. He didn't necessarily have this idea of a circuit. So it's funny. I mean, you and I, you know, we we we, we didn't grow up kind of knowing because it's just kind of part of what we grew up with without thinking about it, that the blood circulates. But actually, it's not an intuitive idea at all. You know, you can't see it. If you, the, 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 the blood goes through, say, in your, in your fingertips, these tiny capillaries, they're very, very small. It's the, the individual blood cells are squeezed through these tiny capillaries to release their oxygen and pick up carbon dioxide and other things, take them away for disposal. There's nothing obvious there, but there's great beauty the more you look. Onto brains, and there's a... And now I realise I haven't written down the neuroscientist's name, but there's a really wonderful metaphor at the beginning of this chapter about brains, uh, where a neuroscientist describes a brain as being like a forest. What does he mean? Yeah, this is a man called Santiago Ramón y Cajal. Um, he was a Spanish anatomist and neuroscientist. He won the Nobel Prize for his work, mostly on his study of the anatomy of the brain. He was a brilliant uh, draftsman as well. He was he fancied himself something as an artist, and actually, for good reason, he was, uh, I think, some of his... Uh, sketches of neurons are, are very, very beautiful. They arguably rival some of the sketches made by Leonardo da Vinci. He said this, in, um, we could say the brain is like a garden planted with innumerable trees, which, thanks to intelligent cultivation, can multiply their branches and sink their roots deeper, producing fruits and flowers of ever greater variety and quality. So he recognised that the brain, the neurons are changing and, and moving, if you like, over time, um, and are growing, and it's a constant process of, of change. And uh, you know that is a hint towards some of the, and this is, you know, this is a huge field, but some of the discoveries of recent decades in terms of um, brain anatomy and behaviour and change. And you've already mentioned at the beginning you know, the idea that the brain is probably, possibly, you know, the most complicated thing in the universe. And I guess when we think about that, we're normally thinking about human brains. But of course, in this book, you talk about some other some other remarkable brains, like the octopus brain, the brains of a songbird. Tell us something about octopuses' brains. Yeah, there's actually a rather unfortunate uh, error in one of the 
subheadings of this chapter. It's meant to say that human brains are not the only amazing brains. So uh, there's, uh, hopefully I'll correct that for the next edition. But anyway, yes, uh, human brains are not the only amazing brains on the planet. And, and other animals um, have brains which we often think, well, they're not so smart. But uh, in many ways, they're smarter than us and have capabilities that we, we can't begin to match. And so a good example are octopuses. And their brains are very strange. They evolved along a completely different route from our own. The last common ancestor that we had with an octopus probably looked something like a simple worm or mollusk-like thing. Probably had very few neurons. It certainly didn't have a brain, anything like the brain of either a human or an octopus. And so its, it, it's brain, an octopus's brain, has evolved for 500 million years along a different pathway from our own. So not surprisingly, it's pretty different. It also has the of course, not having a skull, they can squeeze it through a tiny space, which has got to be pretty handy. But anyway, the, the octopus actually have in, well, they don't have a head. The thing we call a head isn't a head at all. It actually has, you know, if you think of that like lump, you know, the big round lump on an octopus, that's not a head. It, it actually contains mostly the guts. But anyway, the brain is actually mostly, these two brains are actually mostly wrapped around the esophagus, around the throat. And then it also, but remarkably, it also has distributed brains. So each of its arms and, you know, people who've seen octopuses on either in life or on TV and Blue Planet 2 or elsewhere, you know, each arm does seem to be able to do things by itself. And that's absolutely right, because it has a distributed brain in there. It's like a, it has a, you know, large numbers of neurons in, e in each of its arms. So it has the, this extraordinary distributed brain. Now, measuring intelligence is a really complex and debated thing. You know, a lot depends what one means by intelligence. There are lots of different kinds of intelligence. intelligence. Intelligence is about solving problems. And the problems facing a, a monkey are different from the problems facing an octopus. So to say one is more intelligent than the other probably isn't very helpful. But nevertheless, we, we can see that octopuses are really smart. They can recognize symbols. They can um, manipulate objects and open things, which, which would fox most humans. Uh, they can recognize individual people and they, they can deceive people quite effectively. They're, they're very, very smart indeed. And here they are. So people often say, you know, if you're looking for a real life alien, good luck looking in the stars, but you, you may not find one there. But you can certainly find one right here by just looking at the common octopus. I have to add here, Neil, um, when I was working on the last book, I wrote about octopuses. And at that stage, I had to stop eating them because they're just so wonderful. And, and uh, even though I'm, I'm not uh, coherently vegetarian, I'm trying, but I please people don't eat octopuses. They're great. I think that's a, that's a good good rule to follow. So the next one, the next chapter is a human life. In this chapter, you've you've split the chapter itself into into sort of roughly three parts to follow the sort of ancient ages of a human life, splitting it into sort of morning, morning, afternoon, and evening of of life, and looking at the ways in which we um we experience wonder in each, going from you know the first sort of sproutings of curiosity until to sort of like attitudes to death towards the end um but i want to talk about orgasms okay uh <laughs> orgasms i i'd love to say something about the rest of the chapter but on orgasms what to start with um i mean the book is a little bit ludicrous that's something to say the whole attempt to try and write a book on on everything in in just a few hundred pages and never mind to write about uh, the arc of a human life uh, in, in just a few tens of pages. So orgasm, it's one of the most intense experiences, perhaps the most intense experience that many of us have. Is it wonderful? Is it full of wonder? Uh, and that's a good question. I think many people will tell you that it is. These, uh, these intense experiences are... So in this book, I argue that orgasm is, is obviously it's a, one of the most intense experiences we have, perhaps the most intense 
there are others that we we really enjoy uh, music for some people rock and roll maybe drugs but also perhaps things which we take a little more seriously sometimes to do with identity and religion and a sense of purpose and meaning. These are all intense experiences. And I tried in this chapter to look at some of their more surprising sides. So orgasms are at foundation, a reflex of the autonomic nervous system. Uh, You can experience them even if you're paralyzed. They have all kinds of surprising aspects to them. One of many that I mentioned in that chapter is... uh, from experience, not my own, but from people I know, that uh, synesthesia, um, bright colors are experienced by some people in orgasm. And uh, in one case, the color changes each time. And I thought there would be an interesting experiment there for anybody wanting wanting an Ig Nobel Prize, you know, the, the Ig Nobels for research that make, first makes you laugh, then makes you think. So I wrote about orgasm in the context of wondrous and intense experiences, not perhaps saying it is necessarily a great wonder of life, although perhaps it is. That's that's something we could discuss. Uh, but it's it's part of our route into intense experience. Often, of course, in our adult lives, in our middle part of our lives, uh, when we're most um, available and uh, enthused by all kinds of intense experience. Perhaps later in life, there's more reflection and sense of uh, memory and meaning. But in the middle of life, we go we go full on for these uh, very intense experiences, including orgasm. So we're nearly towards the end, and and your chapter on the world, I think we're running out of time, so I think I'll, I'll skip over. But in that chapter, you have a sort of wonderful discussion of of the way that we, you know, the way that we gradually mapped the Earth, early maps, and then into the future, mapping the cosmos. But I want to get to the the last chapter, the future, the Perapsatron chapter, and I'll just say, you know, just as a general question, what sort of wonders are in store for us in the future? Well, uh, that's a good question. I mean. I should say, you know, I don't know. And I tried to say in the chapter that here are some things that seem likely, but even these ones, they may not develop as I or anybody else will tell you they're going to go. We we can be, we just can't be sure. And actually others, which I haven't discussed here, could turn out to be much more important. I think, you know, all of us can learn something from some of the great science fiction authors who are, they may predict or, you know, they may describe, let's say, a an extraordinary future with kind of flying cars or whatever. But, uh, you know, they'll often be wrong. And, and yet it still makes a good story. So but nevertheless, you, you can, you know, we, we most of us would think, well, I can make a fair guess what are going to be the important technologies. And, and I thought it was interesting to explore three here. I, again, I stopped at three because I would I could have written an, another whole book and perhaps I wouldn't mind doing so if I could on others. But I chose three and I chose energy technologies, which are so fundamental to everything about our society and, and what may happen there. And then I chose uh, space, which I, I think there's a, a lot of excitement and I think perhaps a lot of misplaced um, expectation in some respects. But nevertheless, space technologies, among other things, they do open up vistas of wonder and beauty, which are, are really worth paying attention to. And then uh, perhaps the one that plays the biggest role often in in kind of popular culture at the moment, at least, is all the excitement and anxieties we have around information technologies, computers, artificial intelligence, and so on. So I, I, I stuck mostly with those three. But I also, you know, the, this chapter, it's about dreams. It's, uh, you know, technology is something that uh, it originates in part in our dreams. Of course, it originates in very careful, painstaking research and trial and error and disappointment. But it's all, it, these are our dreams for the future. 
So I've been talking to Casper Henderson and we've been talking about his new book, A New Map of Wonders, A Journey in Search of Modern Marvels, which is out now from Granta. Casper, thank you so much for sharing it with me. Thanks for having me, Neil. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.